Chapter Nine, Part Two of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Nine, Part Two. When Anna Brangwen heard the news, she pressed back her head and rolled her eyes as if something were reaching forward to bite at her throat. She pressed back her head. Her mind was driven back to sleep. Since she had married and become a mother, the girl she had been was forgotten. Now the shock threatened to break in upon her and sweep away all her intervening life, make her as a girl of eighteen again, loving her father. So she pressed back, away from the shock. She clung to her present life. It was when they brought him to her house, dead and in his wet clothes, his wet, sodden clothes, fully dressed as he came from market, yet all sodden and inert, that the shock really broke into her, and she was terrified. A big, soaked, inert heap he was, who had been to her the image of power and strong life. Almost in horror she began to take the wet things from him, to pull off him the incongruous market clothes of a well-to-do farmer. The children were sent away to the vicarage. The dead body lay on the parlor floor. Anna quickly began to undress him, laid his fob and seals in a wet heap on the table. Her husband and the woman helped her. They cleared and washed the body and laid it on the bed. There it looked still and grand. He was perfectly calm in death, and now he was laid in line, inviolable, unapproachable. To Anna he was the majesty of the inaccessible male, the majesty of death. It made her still and awe-stricken, almost glad. Lydia Brangwen, the mother, also came and saw the impressive and viable body of the dead man. She went pale, seeing death. He was beyond change or knowledge, absolute laid in line with the infinite. What had she to do with him? He was a majestic abstraction, made visible now for a moment, inviolate, absolute. And who could lay claim to him? Who could speak of him? Of the him who was revealed in the stripped moment of transit from life into death? Neither the living nor the dead could claim him. He was both the one and the other, inviolable, inaccessibly himself. I shared life with you. I belong in my own way to eternity, said Lydia Brangwen, her heart cold, knowing her own singleness. I did not know you in life. You are beyond me, supreme now in death, said Anna Brangwen, awe-stricken, almost glad. It was the sons who could not bear it. Fred Brangwen went about with a set, blanched face and shut hands, his heart full of hatred and rage for what had been done to his father. Bleeding also with desire to have his father again, to see him, to hear him again, he could not bear it. Tom Brangwen only arrived on the day of the funeral. He was quiet and controlled as ever. He kissed his mother, who was still dark-faced, inscrutable. He shook hands with his brother without looking at him. He saw the great coffin with its black handles. He even read the nameplate, Tom Brangwen of the Marsh Farm born blank died blank the good-looking still face of the young man crinkled up for a moment in a terrible grimace then resumed its stillness the coffin was carried round to the church the funeral bell tanged at intervals 
the mourners carried their wreaths of white flowers. The mother, the Polish woman, went with dark abstract face on her son's arm. He was good-looking as ever, his face perfectly motionless, and somehow pleasant. Fred walked with Anna, she strange and winsome, he with a face like wood, stiff, unyielding. Only afterwards Ursula, flitting between the currant bushes down the garden, saw her Uncle Tom standing in his black clothes, erect and fashionable, but his fists lifted, and his face distorted. His lips curled back from his teeth in a horrible grin, like an animal which grimaces with torment, whilst his body panted quick like a panting dog's. He was facing the open distance, panting and holding still, then panting rapidly again, but his face never changing from its almost bestial look of torture, the teeth all showing, the nose wrinkled up, the eyes unseeing, fixed. Terrified, Ursula slipped away, and when her Uncle Tom was in the house again, grave and very quiet, so that he seemed almost to affect gravity, to pretend grief, she watched his still handsome face, imagining it again in its distortion. But she saw the nose was rather thick, rather Russian, under its transparent skin. She remembered the teeth under the carefully cut moustache were small and sharp and spaced. She could see him, in all his elegant demeanour, bestial, almost corrupt. And she was frightened. She never forgot to look for the bestial, frightening side of him after this. He said good-bye to his mother and went away at once. Ursula almost shrank from his kiss now. She wanted it, nevertheless, and the little revulsion as well. At the funeral and after the funeral, Will Brangwen was madly in love with his wife. The death had shaken him, but death and all seemed to gather in him into a mad, overwhelming passion for his wife. She seemed so strange and winsome. He was almost beside himself with desire for her. And she took him. She seemed ready for him. She wanted him. The grandmother stayed a while at the yew cottage till the marsh was restored. Then she returned to her own rooms, quiet and, it seemed, wanting nothing. Fred threw himself into the work of restoring the farm. That his father was killed there seemed to make it only the more intimate, and the more inevitably his own place. There was a saying that the Brangwins always died a violent death. To them all, except perhaps Tom, it seemed almost natural. Yet Fred went about obstinate, his heart fixed. He could never forgive the unknown, this murder of his father. After the death of the father, the marsh was very quiet. Mrs. Brangwen was unsettled. She could not sit all the evening peacefully as she could before, and during the day she was always rising to her feet and hesitating, as if she must go somewhere and were not quite sure whither. She was seen loitering about the garden in her little woolen jacket. She was often driven out in the gig, sitting beside her son and watching the countryside or the streets of the town, with a childish, candid, uncanny face, as if it all were strange to her. The children, Ursula and Gudrun and Teresa, went by the garden gate on their way to school. The grandmother would have them call in each time they passed. She would have them come to the marsh for dinner. She wanted children about her. Of her sons she was almost afraid. She could see the sombre passion and desire and dissatisfaction in them, and she wanted not to see it any more. Even Fred, with his blue eyes and his heavy jaw, troubled her. 
There was no peace. He wanted something. He wanted love, passion, and he could not find them. But why must he trouble her? Why must he come to her with his seething and suffering and dissatisfactions? She was too old. Tom was more restrained, reserved. He kept his body very still, but he troubled her even more. She could not but see the black depths of disintegration in his eyes, the sudden glance upon her, as if she could save him, as if he would reveal himself. And how could age save youth? Youth must go to youth. Always the storm. Could she not lie in peace these years in the quiet, apart from life? No, always the swell must heave upon her and break against the barriers. Always she must be embroiled in the seethe and rage and passion, endless, endless, going on for ever. And she wanted to draw away. She wanted at last her own innocence and peace. She did not want her sons to force upon her any more the old brutal story of desire and offerings and deep, deep-hidden rage of unsatisfied men against women. She wanted to be beyond it all, to know the peace and innocence of age. She had never been a woman to work much, so that now she would stand often at the garden gate, watching the scant world go by, and the sight of children pleased her, made her happy. She had usually an apple or a few sweets in her pocket. She liked children to smile at her. She never went to her husband's grave. She spoke of him simply as if he were alive. Sometimes the tears would run down her face in helpless sadness. Then she recovered and was herself again, happy. On wet days she stayed in bed. Her bedroom was her city of refuge, where she could lie down and muse and muse. Sometimes Fred would read to her, but that did not mean much. She had so many dreams to dream over, such an unsifted store. She wanted time. Her chief friend at this period was Ursula. The little girl and the musing, fragile woman of sixty seemed to understand the same language. At Casate all was activity and passion. Everything moved upon poles of passion. Then there were four children, younger than Ursula, a throng of babies, all the time, many lives beating against each other. So that for the eldest child the peace of the grandmother's bedroom was exquisite. Here Ursula came as to a hushed, paradisal land, here her own existence became simple and exquisite to her as if she were a flower. Always on Saturdays she came down to the marsh, and always clutching a little offering, either a little mat made of strips of colored woven paper, or a tiny basket made in the kindergarten lesson, or a little crayon drawing of a bird. When she appeared in the doorway, Tilly, ancient but still in authority, would crane her skinny neck to see who it was. "'Oh, it's you, is it?' she said. I thought we should be seeing you. My word, that's a bobby dazzling posy you've brought. It was curious how Tilly preserved the spirit of Tom Brangwen, who was dead, in the marsh. Ursula always connected her with her grandfather. This day the child had brought a tight little nosegay of pinks, white ones, with a rim of pink ones. She was very proud of it and very shy because of her pride. Your grandmother's in her bed. Wipe your shoes well if you're going up, and don't go bursting in on her like a skyrocket. My word, but that's a fine posy. Did you do it all by yourself and all? Tilly stealthily ushered her into the bedroom. The child entered with a strange dragging hesitation characteristic of her when she was moved. Her grandmother was sitting up in bed wearing a little gray woolen jacket. 
The child hesitated in silence near the bed, clutching the nosegay in front of her. Her childish eyes were shining. The grandmother's gray eyes shone with a similar light. "'How pretty!' she said. "'How pretty you have made them! What a darling little bunch!' Ursula, glowing, thrust them into her grandmother's hand, saying, "'I made them you!' "'That is how the peasants tied them at home,' said the grandmother, pushing the pinks with her fingers and smelling them. "'Just such tight little bunches, and they make wreaths for their hair. They weave the stalks, then they go round with wreaths in their hair, and wearing their best aprons.' Ursula immediately imagined herself in this story-land. "'Did you used to have a wreath in your hair, Grandmother?' "'When I was a little girl I had golden hair, something like Katie's. "'Then I used to have a wreath of little blue flowers, oh so blue, that come when the snow is gone. "'Audrey the coachman used to bring me the very first. "'They talked, and then Tilly brought the tea-tray, set for two. "'Ursula had a special green and gold cup kept for herself at the marsh. "'There was thin bread and butter and cress for tea. "'It was all special and wonderful.' She ate very daintily, with little fastidious bites. "'Why do you have two wedding-rings, Grandmother? Must you?' asked the child, noticing her grandmother's ivory-coloured hand with blue veins above the tray. "'If I had two husbands, child—' Ursula pondered a moment. "'Then you must wear both rings together?' "'Yes.' "'Which was my grandfather's ring?' The woman hesitated. "'This grandfather whom you knew?' This was his ring, the red one. The yellow one was your other grandfather's, whom you never knew. Ursula looked interestedly at the two rings on the proffered finger. "'Where did he buy it, you?' she asked. "'This one? In Warsaw, I think.' "'You didn't know my own grandfather, then?' "'Not this grandfather.' Ursula pondered this fascinating intelligence. "'Did he have white whiskers as well?' "'No, his beard was dark.' "'You have his brows, I think.' Ursula ceased and became self-conscious. She at once identified herself with her Polish grandfather. "'And did he have brown eyes?' "'Yes, dark eyes. He was a clever man, as quick as a lion. He was never still.' Lydia still resented Lenski. When she thought of him, she was always younger than he. She was always twenty or twenty-five, and under his domination— he incorporated her in his ideas as if she were not a person herself, as if she were just his aide-de-camp, or part of his baggage, or one among his surgical appliances. She still resented it, and he was always only thirty. He had died when he was thirty-four. She did not feel sorry for him. He was older than she, yet she still ached in the thought of those days. "'Did you like my first grandfather best?' asked Ursula. "'I liked them both,' said the grandmother." And, thinking, she became again Lenski's girl-bride. He was of good family, of better family even than her own, for she was half German. She was a young girl in a house of insecure fortune, and he, an intellectual, a clever surgeon and physician, had loved her. How she had looked up to him! She remembered her first transports when he talked to her, the important young man with the severe black beard. He had seemed so wonderful, such an authority— after her own lax household, his gravity and confident hard authority seemed almost godlike to her, for she had never known it in her life. All her surroundings had been loose, lax, disordered, a welter. 
"'Miss Lydia, will you marry me?' he had said to her in German, in his grave yet tremulous voice. She had been afraid of his dark eyes upon her. They did not see her. They were fixed upon her. And he was hard, confident. She thrilled with the excitement of it, and accepted. During the courtship his kisses were a wonder to her. She always thought about them and wondered over them. She never wanted to kiss him back. In her idea the man kissed, and the woman examined in her soul the kisses she had received. She had never quite recovered from her prostration of the first days or nights of marriage. He had taken her to Vienna, and she was utterly alone with him, utterly alone in another world, everything, everything foreign, even he foreign to her. Then came the real marriage. Passion came to her, and she became his slave. He was her lord, her lord. She was the girl-bride, the slave. She kissed his feet. She had thought it an honor to touch his body, to unfasten his boots. For two years she had gone on as his slave, crouching at his feet, embracing his knees. Children had come. He had followed his ideas. She was there for him, just to keep him in condition. She was to him one of the baser or material conditions necessary for his welfare in prosecuting his ideas, of nationalism, of liberty, of science. But gradually, at twenty-three, twenty-four, she began to realize that she too might consider these ideas. By his acceptance of her self-subordination, he exhausted the feeling in her. There were those of his associates who would discuss the ideas with her, though he did not wish to do so himself. She had ventured into the minds of other men. His, then, was not the only male mind. She did not exist, then, just as his attribute. She began to perceive the attention of other men. An excitement came over her. She remembered now the men who had paid her court when she was married in Warsaw. Then the rebellion broke out, and she was inspired, too. She would go as a nurse at her husband's side. He worked like a lion. He wore his life out, and she followed him helplessly. But she disbelieved in him. He was so separate, he ignored so much, he counted too much on himself. His work, his ideas, did nothing else matter? Then the children were dead, and for her everything became remote. He became remote. She saw him, she saw him go white when he heard the news, then frown as if he thought, Why have they died now, when I have no time to grieve? He has no time to grieve, she had said, in her remote, awful soul. He has no time. It is so important what he does. He is then so self-important, this half-frenzied man, nothing matters, but this work of rebellion. He has not time to grieve, nor to think of his children. He had not time even to beget them, really. She had let him go on alone, but in the chaos she had worked by his side again, and out of the chaos she had fled with him to London. He was a broken, cold man. He had no affection for her, nor for anyone. He had failed in his work, so everything had failed. He stiffened and died. She could not subscribe. He had failed, everything had failed, yet behind the failure was the unyielding passion of life. The individual effort might fail, but not the human joy. She belonged to the human joy. He died and went his way, but not before there was another child. And this little Ursula was his grandchild. She was glad of it, for she still honoured him, though he had been mistaken. She, Lydia Brangwen, was sorry for him now. He was dead. He had scarcely lived. 
He had never known her. He had lain with her, but he had never known her. He had never received what she could give him. He had gone away from her empty, so he had never lived. So he had died and passed away, yet there had been strength and power in him. She could scarcely forgive him that he had never lived. If it were not for Anna and for this little Ursula who had his brows, there would be no more left of him than of a broken vessel thrown away and just remembered. Tom Brangwen had served her. He had come to her and taken from her. He had died and gone his way into death, but he had made himself immortal in his knowledge with her. So she had her place here in life and in immortality, for he had taken his knowledge of her into death so that she had her place in death. In my father's house are many mansions. She loved both her husbands. To one she had been a naked little girl bride running to serve him. The other she loved out of fulfillment, because he was good and had given her being, because he had served her honorably and become her man, one with her. She was established in this stretch of life. She had come to herself. During her first marriage she had not existed except through him. He was the substance, and she the shadow running at his feet. She was very glad she had come to her own self. She was grateful to Brangwen. She reached out to him in gratitude, into death. In her heart she felt a vague tenderness and pity for her first husband, who had been her lord. He was so wrong when he died. She could not bear it that he had never lived, never really become himself, and he had been her lord. Strange it all had been. Why had he been her lord? He seemed now so far off, so without bearing on her. Which did you, grandmother? What? Like best. I liked them both. I married the first when I was quite a girl. Then I loved your grandfather when I was a woman. There is a difference. They were silent for a time. Did you cry when my first grandfather died? the child asked. Lydia Brangwen rocked herself on the bed, thinking aloud. When we came to England, he hardly ever spoke. He was too much concerned to take any notice of anybody. He grew thinner and thinner till his cheeks were hollow and his mouth stuck out. He wasn't handsome any more. I knew he couldn't bear being beaten. I thought everything was lost in the world, only I had your mother, a baby. It was no use my dying. He looked at me with his black eyes, almost as if he hated me when he was ill, and said, It only wanted this. It only wanted that I should leave you and a young child to starve in this London. I told him we should not starve. But I was young and foolish and frightened, which he knew. He was bitter, and he never gave way. He lay beating his brains to see what he could do. I don't know what you will do, he said. I am no good. I am a failure from beginning to end. I cannot even provide for my wife and child. But you see, it was not for him to provide for us. My life went on, though his stopped, and I married your grandfather. I ought to have known. I ought to have been able to say to him, Don't be so bitter. Don't die because this has failed. You are not the beginning and the end. But I was too young. He had never let me become myself. I thought he was truly the beginning and the end. So I let him take all upon himself. Yet all did not depend on him. Life must go on, and I must marry your grandfather, and have your Uncle Tom and your Uncle Fred. We cannot take so much upon ourselves." The child's heart beat fast as she listened to these things. She could not understand, 
but she seemed to feel far-off things. It gave her a deep, joyous thrill to know she hailed from far-off, from Poland, and that dark-bearded, impressive man. Strange her antecedents were, and she felt fate on either side of her terrible. Almost every day Ursula saw her grandmother, and every time they talked together till the grandmother's sayings and stories told in the complete hush of the marsh bedroom accumulated with mystic significance and became a sort of bible to the child and ursula asked her deepest childish questions of her grandmother will somebody love me grandmother many people love you child we all love you but when i am grown up will somebody love me yes some man will love you child because it's your nature and I hope it will be somebody who will love you for what you are, and not for what he wants of you. But we have a right to what we want. Ursula was frightened hearing these things. Her heart sank. She felt she had no ground under her feet. She clung to her grandmother. Here was peace and security. Here, from her grandmother's peaceful room, the door opened onto the greater space, the past, which was so big that all it contained seemed tiny, loves and births and deaths tiny units and features within a vast horizon that was a great relief to know the tiny importance of the individual within the great past end of chapter nine